This is HPR episode 2479 entitled Intergraph Workstation. It is hosted by JWP and is about 29 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is my reveal of my Intergraph Workstation. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Good day, and welcome to Hacker Public Radio. My name is JWP, and uh, I want to talk about one of my uh, projects that I uh, did um, uh, at work. I've been going through my old uh, uh, work servers, and uh, they typically run until I can't uh, update them anymore, and then they sit until I have a bit of free time. And so I have an old Intergraph box, and uh, I put a new Pentium 4 board in it about eight years ago and I may have even bought that board used off of eBay or something I can't I can't remember uh, and uh, but I had the recip recept tape to the box and uh, I had done a expense statement from work uh, when I had updated the, the thing and I had been running a CentOS 660 on it and I think I had gotten it up to 64 and then somehow with the repos they, they weren't working now uh, I noticed that while I was playing with it, that the box had all the symptoms of a weak uh, a PSU or a power supply unit. Um, and so I had to take out the DVD drive, which was IED and the graphics card so that it would have uh, a little more power to work or there was a loose connection or the ground or something in there wasn't working. And I wasn't, and I found that in the past that was the easiest way to if you not get in enough power is to start disconnecting things until you get down to what you had so now there's just uh, the motherboard uh, with the memory and two hard disk in the box so what about Intergraph and uh, so Intergraph Corporation is an American software development and services company uh, it wasn't always so um, it currently provides Enterprise engineering and geospatically uh, geo powered software business. So it's does something with geospatial uh, businesses and governments and organizations around the world. Intergraph operates through three divisions: um, Hexagon PPM, Hexagon Safety and Infrastructure, and, he and Hexagon Geospatial. Uh, its headquarters is in Huntsville, Alabama. In 2008. Uh, Intergraph was one of the hundred largest software companies in the world. In 2010, Intergraph was acquired by Hexacon AB. Um, Intergraph was founded in uh, 1969 as MS Consulting Inc. by former IBM engineers who had been working with NASA and the U.S. Army in developing systems that would apply digital computing to real-time missile guidance. 
and the company was later renamed Intergraft in 1980. Uh, thus, that's why it's in Huntsville, Alabama, is because the U.S. Army missile thing is in Huntsville, Alabama. Okay, uh, so that's just a little bit of that. Um, in uh, 2000, Intergraph exited the hardware business and became purely a software company. On July 21st, 2000, it sold its intense 3D graphic accelerator divisions to 3D Labs and its workstation uh, and server division to Silicon Graphics. Um, and uh, Silicon Graphics, of course, last year was purchased by HP. Um, so um, the companies incorporated uh, SmartSketch, which is a drawing program previously used for Pinpoint OS and EO tablet computer. When pin computing didn't take off, uh, SmartStretch was ported to Windows and Macintosh platforms. Um, I have a, 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 a TD300 uh, or TD400. It's just a shell now, so all of the guts in that thing have been replaced over the time. But uh, the TD300 and TD400 personal workstations at the time from Intergraph, this was back in 95, 96, were one of the first to offer 3D capabilities equal to or below prices of PCs configured as 3D workstations. The company said uh, the TD300 and TD400 were available for uh, starting at $5,495 back in 1997. So I have uh, the case, the old TD case, because uh, I think it's still pretty, uh, um, pretty interesting. And as I said before, uh, at some point in time, I put a P4 uh, dual core in it. Um, I date this probably between 2004 and 2007 from the Wikipedia on Pentium 4. Uh, and so I had to think a little bit about what I was going to do with it. So I have uh, the Ubuntu 32-bit box at work that, you know, it's on that small form factor thing. And, and I'm pretty happy with it. And uh, so I said, well, what do I need? And and I said, well, my SUSE Enterprise 12, my SUSE Tumbleweed, and my SUSE Leap are all on my Hyper-V box. And uh, so I, I said, what am I missing? And, and uh, I just came back from a Red Hat training where if I could have VPNed into a, uh, a rail box, a uh, physical rail box, and played around, it would have been really really great. And so I, I was really leaning uh, toward uh, CentOS, even though I know from the past that they have real upgrade trouble. So if you let that box sit and try to come back and update it, the repositories all change and it's a pain in the butt to get all that to work. Now, when I went to the CentOS website, uh, it seemed that uh, they're moving uh, more and more and more people are using the uh, cloud uh, with that stuff. It's a cloud server and I'll, I'll talk about that later. Um, and so I picked CentOS so I didn't have to worry about trying to manage the internal subscriptions at work and everything. And so what is CentOS? And uh, CentOS is a community enterprise operating system. It's a Linux distribution that attempts to provide free enterprise class community supported computing platform functionality compatible with its upstream source code from Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Um, in January 2014, CentOS announced the official joining of Red Hat while staying independent from Rail 
under the new CentOS governing board. In July 2010, uh, CentOS overtook Debian to become the most popular Linux distribution for web servers with almost 30% of all web servers using it. Debian retook the lead in January 2012. So I know in my SAP world that a lot of people are using CentOS for their tests and development and sandbox systems rather than paying the the subscription fee to to Red Hat. And so if it's happening in the SAP world uh, with, with proprietary software running it on that, it's, it's almost identical. I know that it's almost identical. Okay. Uh, again, in 2014, Red Hat announced that it would sponsor the CentOS project, helping to establish a platform well-suited to the needs of open-source developers that integrate technologies in and around the operating system. As a result of these changes, um, the ownership of CentOS was transferred, uh, the trademarks uh, were transferred to Red Hat, and uh, which now employs most of the CentOS CentOS head developers. However, they work as part of Red Hat's open source standards team, which operates separately from the Red Hat enterprise team. A new CentOS governing board was also established, as I said earlier. And CentOS developers use Red Hat source code to create a final product, which is very similar to Rail. Uh, Red Hat's branding and logos are changed because Red Hat does not allow them to be redistributed. CentOS is available free of charge and technical support is primarily provided by the community via mailing lists, web forms, and chat rooms. CentOS version numbers and releases older than 7.0 have two parts, a major version and a, a minor version, which correspond to the major version and update set of RAIL Linux. RAIL used to build a particular CentOS, literally, for, for example, CentOS 6.5 was built from the source packages for Rail 6 Update 5, known as Rail version 6.5, which so-called point release of Rail 6.0. Um, the starting with Rail 7, the CentOS version numbers also include a third part that indicates the month stamp of the source code the release was based on. For example, version 7.0. 7 dot one four zero six um still maps to CentOS release to the zero update of rail seven while the fourteen oh six indicates the source code released on the dates of fourteen june oh four using the months gap allows the installation images to be reissued as of july fourteenth oncoming container and cloud releases while maintaining the connection to the base version. Um, since 2006, starting with Rail 4.4, which was formerly known as Red Hat Enterprise Linux 4.0 Update 4, Red Hat adopted a naming convention identical to that used by CentOS. For example, Rail 4.5 or Rail 6.5. Uh, there are alternate Alternate Arch releases uh, are released uh, uh, by the Alternative Architecture Special Interest Group, uh, what they call the Alt-Arch SIG, uh, to support, and uh, um, in, inside of these different architectures are, and I, I looked and I could have got an IA32, so I could have had, had an IA32, but 
you know, really, really, my previous experience with Synth, which was only when I had it, is that if you don't hit the updates and you don't keep your eye on it, uh, the mirrors will change and you can't find a new mirror. And it's really, I haven't ever figured out, I think maybe that'll be my next goal is to figure out how to run one of these things really long term with the mirrors constantly changing and stuff. And of course, if you have a, a, a rail subscription, uh, you just connect to the satellite server uh, inside your company and then all the updates and everything happen through that satellite server uh, from, from Red Hat. Um, but if you're doing a community, then he has to find a mirror and, and sometimes the mirrors change. And uh, it's not like Ubuntu where you can go to the Ubuntu repository or or Mint, you could get something from Mint or Debian. It's 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 a, a I find it to be very very extremely different uh, with the, how how to get the packages. And once you find a good mirror, it's okay. But I had to like it took a very long time for it to. It said I'm trying to find the fastest mirror, and uh, sometimes it would connect to something somewhere, so, uh, uh, and I wouldn't know uh, where it was going. Um, so the, uh, repositories, there's three main repositories and these are known as channels and they contain software packages. So it, there's a base and the base packages, uh, that contain, uh, CentOS point releases and it gets updated when the actual point release is formally made in the form of ILS images. And then there's updates that contains packages that serve as security bug fix or enhancement updates issued between the regular update sets or point releases. Uh, bug fix and enhancement updates released this way uh, are only those unsuitable to be released uh, through the uh, CentOS fast track repository described below. Add-ons. Add-ons packages uh, required for building packages to make up the main distribution but are not provided by upstream. So this is the three things that you get, but you can enable uh, other things. So CentOS uh, provides several additional repositories, which I have never uh, activated, uh, that contain software packages not provided in the default op uh, update. Um, these repositories include the following. Uh, CentOS Extras uh, contain additional functionality to CentOS without breaking its upstream compatibility. Uh, CentOS Plus contains packages that actually upgrade certain base CentOS components, changing CentOS so it's not exactly like the upstream provider's content. And then they have CentOS Testing, CentOS Plus, plus CentOS Extras offer packages that may or may not replace core uh, CentOS packages and they're not guaranteed to work properly. Now, most important is the Fast Track. Uh, CentOS Fast Track contains bug fence bug fix and enhancement updates issued from time to time uh, between the regular update sets for point releases. These packages released service uh, very close candidates for inclusion to the next point release. And this repository does not provide security updates and does not contain packages unsuitable to uncertain inclusion into point releases. And then uh, they have a CR continuous release uh, um, uh, thing that will have packages that are always in uh, a debug uh, info and a contrib uh, channel which also contains packages contributed by CentOS users that do not 
overlap with any core distribution packages. And then they have this thing called software collections, which provides software newer than those provided by the base distribution. And I, I know a lot of people use these collections. Okay. Uh, so during my setup, I had to do something with LVM. Uh, the, the drives that I have are there are two uh, Western Digital 320 gigabyte disk. Uh, one was uh, very, very hot uh, to the touch. And so there wasn't much room between the drives. And so I moved it up and mounted it into a three and a half. Uh, they're all three and a half inches wide, uh, but some of them are full length, three and a half. And there was another one that was a half height. So I moved it up into one of the half heights and just made the screws sort of match. And it cooled that drive off pretty much immediately. And then the Linux, um, in Linux, uh, the logical volume manager, LVM, is a device mapper target that provides a logical volume management for the kernel. Uh, most modern Linux distributions are LVM aware uh, to the point of being able to have their root file systems on a logical volume. Okay, a guy named Heinz, uh, Mall. Malls Hagen wrote the original LVM code in 1998, taking its primary guidelines from HPUX Volume Manager. Golly, that makes my heart feel good because uh, I sold a lot of HPUX boxes over the years, and and uh, to see something from HPUX actually make it into uh, the Linux kernel, really powerful for me. Uh, LVM is used for the following purposes, creating single logical volumes of multiple physical volumes or entire hard disk. And that's what I did. Uh, somewhat similar to RAID 0, but more similar to a, a JBot, allowing for dynamic resizing. And so that's the one I did. And so ma managing large disk forms by allowing disks to be added and replaced without downtime, uh, that's what uh, most people do in the server room there. On small systems like a desktop, instead of having to estimate having to estimate at installation time how big a partition might be, LVM allows the file system to be easily resized as needed. So you can go back into the partition manager and CentOS and just make it bigger. But I found that uh, after I uh, did everything, that everything was properly set up and that it worked really, really well. And if you read, if you reboot it with Gparted and look at it, it's got like the LVM thing, and that takes up a a few uh, less than a gigabyte of space. And then it underneath are XD4 partitions um, underneath there. And um, so it it's uh, so uh, performing consistent backups by taking snapshots is also a part. Uh, LVM can be considered as a thin layer of continuity and ease of use for managing hard drive replacement, repartitioning, and backup. Uh, a software layer on top of the hard disk and partitions, which creates an abstraction. So like I said, when I used Gparted, there was an, a, a, a small partition with, uh, I guess, the LVM stuff, and then there were two XD, XD4, and there was an XD4 partition underneath. And so basic functionality. Uh, so uh, you have volume groups, which are called VGs, and these can be resized uh, online by adding new physical volumes or ejecting uh, existing ones. And then you have LVs, or logical volumes, which can be resized online by uh, 
con wow that's a word concat concatenating con concatenating extents onto them or truncating extents of them lvs can be moved between pvs uh creation of read-only snapshots of logical volumes lvm1 or read-write snapshots lvm2 uh, L, uh vgs can be split or merged in in situ as long as no lvs span the split this can be useful when migrating whole lvs uh to a form of offline storage. So uh, take it to mean you can put it on tape uh, if, if you so desired. Uh, LV objects can be tagged for administrative convenience. Uh, VGs and LVs can be made active as underlying devices become available through the use of the LVM ETAD daemon. Um, I found that the setup again with CentOS is not as simple as with uh, Linux Mint or Ubuntu, and very different than Debian. Um, the, there wasn't like uh, something that marches you through it. It was more like here's a menu and you have to click on each thing and and do it. And it it, it was okay. I I just hadn't ever done it before, and I don't have much experience with Anaconda, um, and I just thought that it could be a little more guided uh, I guess um, and um, I had to like I said I had to click a little bit and for me with the 500 gigabyte or the two 320 uh, gigabyte disk uh, uh, or with the I'm sorry I had a 500 gigabyte minimum installed disk and it installed uh, basically an open SSH server and no graphical anything and there was no nano so be ready if you're a nano guy there's no nano there and if you're behind a proxy you've got to do some stuff with vi so you better have your 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 press i and escape from insert mode and colon w and colon uh and colon uh uh x uh, all down because uh, if not then it'll be a bad you'll have a bad day you you really 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 will so I had to use VI until I got the packages and got my nano up on my thing and I know that there are those of you that don't think nano is an editor but I can do nano really really well and I'm very comfortable with it whereas VI I have to think oh my god and of course every Linux certification test you better have VI Vim a little bit of Emacs going for you, or there's going to be trouble. There's never a question about Nano on any of them tests. <laughs> so, uh, but you can just do that. Uh, as I said before, it, it was just I, I, I got a bare server, I got a bare system that had SSH on it. And after I got the update issues fixed uh, with the yum config file, uh, I put GNOME on it, and it was fine. And uh, as I said earlier, the machine was having power issues and would not boot from a USB stick. And so what I did was I had uh, I burned uh, the CentOS image to a, a DVD at home. And this was one of those modern portable uh, Blu-ray uh, DVD burners, uh, Blu-ray burner. And I put it on a, a DVD-R. And... Um, 
and at work, you know, we have some systems that are 15 years old, 17 years old. So I kept looking at the drive, and I'd be like, it's a DVD uh, drive, but it it's a CD writer. And I was like, oh, no. So this might not work with the format. So I had to go through four different drives in order to find one that would take a DVD-R. And because the power was weak, I had to get another uh, little desktop computer and just move the SATA cable from that desktop into the the Intergraph box and perform the connect the power to that box, turn on its power supply, and use the DVD with the SATA connected to the other one to get CentOS to boot. So if you can imagine, I had the Intergraph box taken apart, and then I had to cover off another one, and I took the SATA cable out and put the SATA cable in from the DVD into the uh, Intergraph box and then use the drive to boot and install everything. But after I did it, it, it started uh, working. Uh, it started working just fine. And of course, like I said earlier, for whatever reason, the IDE drive wasn't working. And I'm almost 100% it's a power supply or maybe something's loose or it's not grounded or something. Um, so to remove the old uh, CentOS 6 partitions, I had to use uh, uh, Gparted as when I went into the CentOS install. It, I, I didn't, I'm sure that's there somewhere, but I didn't see a use the entire disk and erase everything option like I would in Mint or Ubuntu uh, or Debian. And so I, I just said, well, I don't know. So I'll use Gparted and all, which I learned a lot from because I saw that there was that extraction layer that talked about for LVM. And then there was the XT uh, partitions underneath. Um, and so... Uh, what is Gparted? Gparted is a free partition editor for graphically managing your disk partitions. With Gparted, you can resize, copy, and move partitions without data loss. Um, getting uh, the Maris to work uh, through the firewall was pretty hard. And I had to do two config changes to the yum config. Uh, one was the proxy address, and the other was to allow yum to do its own HTTP caching. Um, and so you also have to use the export underscore proxy equals command to get it globally so your SSH goes through the uh, firewall from the command line. After you install GNOME, though, you can use your company uh, proxy script to get that to work. And uh, after some really frustrating times, I was finally able to get it to have a fast mirror um, and I was able to install GNOME, uh, and I made the changes so that it would uh, boot to the graphical login manager and GNOME uh, uh, when it booted up. Uh, note that it doesn't take any memory, really, until you actually log in to the system. Uh, so I still had over 800 megabyte uh, free uh, after I did this. So, but I went from using only 64 or 68 megabytes uh, to using 212 megabytes after I did the GNOME upgrade. Um, okay, um, and eventually I'll still install X2Go or VNC server in case I need to access it for whatever reason. I'm sure playing with the uh, repos uh, or doing a distro upgrade, it'll be easier via the graphical interface and me trying to do it for the first time from the command line. Um, so 
after it did its updates and I was sure that it could talk and everything uh, to the outside world, uh, I went ahead and moved it back to the server room and I got an IP address and connected to it from Putty. And I think that the advantage of this box is I'll always have a Red Hat 7 uh, install ready to demo or learn something without having a, to set a lot of things up like images or try to get something to boot or trying to get Hyper-V, you know, trying to get Hyper-V to, to work, uh, you know, when you've got uh, a class or teaching something, it, it's, uh, it's just really difficult. You know, you really have to, and I don't have the experience with Hyper-V on my laptop to really get it to work. And, and I did the move from VMware Workstation uh, to uh, Hyper-V because uh, with the workstation, I kept on having to reinstall my Windows 10 partition a lot. And so hopefully at some point I'll be able to buy a uh, uh, either a Pixelbook or a um, uh, uh, one of those uh, high-end laptop with, uh, with SUSE on it, and I can try uh, KVM with it. And, uh, well, that's about it. That's at the end of my notes. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. It was a little longer than I normally do. Uh, it was a pretty big project, and it's still pretty fresh in my mind because I did it yesterday. And uh, if you have any questions, please, my email is at jwp5 at hotmail.com. And uh, thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. Uh, uh, God bless Ken Fallon and Dave Morris for all the work that they do and uh, all the other contributors, too. And I hope that uh, you all have a great day. Bye now. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.